Well, Becky and I have some very exciting news. Would you like to tell everybody in this service, since I got to tell them in the last service? We got a new baby. <laughs> we got a new baby. His name is Barakiah Everett. Barakiah Everett Clan. Now let's give the Lord a big hand of praise. We're so excited about that. Several people have asked me, let me read asked me, says, what does Barakiah mean? And I've told him, I said, well, he was one of the four who guarded the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple. He was the son of Asaph, the psalmist that you read about. That's another man named Barakiah in the Bible. He was also another man in the Bible. He was the father of Zechariah. Barakiah was Zechariah's dad. His name means the Lord has blessed, and we feel extremely blessed with our fourth grandson. In case you're wondering, Everett is my middle name, and we're so thankful that God has blessed us with another grandson. And um, I can't wait to get my hands on the little guy. I got to tell you, he looks just like Christopher when he was born. And um, I'm going to spoil him like I've done the other three and then give him back to his mom and dad to work on. So we're just so very, very excited. I'd also like to say thank you this morning. Over $9,000 was given last month for the Indonesian College Pastors Fund that enables us to send students to college and to be able to pay their way through the four years of school. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? That is just phenomenal, and thank you so much for your generosity in helping us to give and to make that happen. Again, I just want to remind you, I was sharing this with someone yesterday, and they said, I had no idea this, there were that many unreached people groups in the world. There are 236 unreached people groups in the nation of Indonesia alone. And part of that has to do with how many islands make up this nation. The other part has to do with it's the fourth most populated nation in the world. There's more population in Indonesia than there is in Russia. And right now, there's a great revival taking place, but there's also a great persecution that's taking place by fanatical Islamic uh, um, terrorists that have really been persecuting the church there. And then I don't know if you follow the news of what happened in Ethiopia to Christians uh, this last week in Ethiopia as well. Persecution, burning of their churches. Uh, they couldn't even bury their dead because of the, of the persecution that was taking place. So we need to continue to be a church, not only as a, a house of prayer, but a house of bread to be able to resource and to minister and to help take care. And I'm so thankful, and I forgot to even share that with the first service this morning, so you'll have to help me get the news out, and maybe they'll hear as they go online as well today. Well, we're continuing in our series on Room to Breathe, and today I would like to talk to you about seeking God and knowing God and desiring God, because you will never really have room in your life to breathe until you know the Lord and you serve Him. And it doesn't matter whether you're a teenager, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a, a student in college or you're a young adult, you will not know what it means to truly have breathing room in your life until you know the Lord. And so that's kind of what I'd like to take you to. I think one of the things that stops people from knowing God is this whole wrestling with shame. 
I was just finished a book a few uh, earlier last or last year. I just finished a book on shame. And as I read that book, I was able to reflect on some of the counseling that I had been able to do as a pastor over the years. I was able to reflect on some of the work I did when I was a mental health counselor working in Florida as a mental health counselor. And then I was also able to reflect on some of the own issues of shame that I had wrestled with. After the first service this morning, I had... um, a question that was posed to me by someone in our church whose son is in medical school right now, asking about the physical condition that I was born with. And as I was talking to him, I said, there was a, a lot of shame that I had to struggle and wrestle through with. And as a young person, you know, my parents were wise enough to get me good counseling to help me deal with that and to know how to wrestle with that. And for a great great amount of my life, you know, dealing with shame was a whole part. It wasn't anything I could help. It wasn't anything I could do anything about, but it was that whole process. Sometimes people deal with shame as a result of their actions. Sometimes people deal with shame as a result of something that someone in their family or a husband or a wife has done. Sometimes we deal with shame just simply because we haven't understood just how completely free the gospel sets us. I read an article uh, last month that was in uh, the Seattle Times of a young woman by Sarah. Sarah's father died in January from the COVID virus. Her aunt died from the COVID virus in January. And because of the two deaths, dealing with the grief with all of that, closing and handling the estates of her aunt and handling the estate of her father, she had not been able to get all of her Christmas decorations down. And so someone in their subdivision wrote a letter to her chastising her and telling her she should be ashamed of herself. It was almost Valentine's Day, and her Christmas decorations were still up. Well, when I first read that part of the article, I thought, obviously, you don't live in Michigan because I've seen years here where we've not been able to get our Christmas decorations down to the spring because we've had so much snow and ice, and it's just dangerous to get those decorations down. But she posted on her neighborhood Facebook group, and maybe you have a subdivision Facebook group like we have. She posted an apology. She said, I'm so sorry. I don't know who wrote the letter. You know, it was, it was just an anonymous letter. She said, I know our Christmas decorations are still up. And she explained what they had been going through as a family. Well, something marvelous happened in her subdivision. It reflects the kind of church that I want Woodland to be. Her neighbors actually went up into their attics, pulled their Christmas decorations back down from the attic, and all through her subdivision, they were redecorating their homes for Christmas because they wanted to show solidarity with Sarah. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? You know, all of us are sinners that are saved by grace. And if you're not a Christian yet, the fact that that you're a sinner doesn't mean that you have to hang your head in shame. You can come to know Jesus Christ this morning, and Christ will wipe away all of your sins and give you a fresh and a brand new start in life. And so this morning, I want to start with two of the key passages that we've already looked at. So I'm going to ask you to stand one more time out of respect for the Word of the Lord. And I want to go to Psalms 31, verse 5. Psalms 31. Now, we've read this every week, and I'm going to tell you a little something about this passage that you may not have known already. Psalms 31 and verse 5. I've put my life in your hands. You, God, I trust. I'm leaping and singing in the circle of your love. And then read this last line with me. 
You gave me room to breathe. One more time. You gave me room to breathe. There is a place in God where you can know beyond a doubt that all things are possible with God. There's a place in God that you can know with absolute certainty that your love and that your shame and your sins are gone. There is a place with God where you can not only know about God, but you can know God and have intimacy with God. I mean, he actually will commune with you. You commune with him. But there's a price for that. And the good news is that Jesus has already paid that price. Now, what you might not have known about this passage of Scripture, because I've been reading it to you from the message translation, this is the same passage that Jesus quoted on the cross, where Peterson translates, I put my life in your hands. This is what Jesus said on the cross when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the old King James Version says, he gave up the ghost or he died into your hands. That's why we have room to breathe, because Christ paid the price for us. And then one more passage, Luke chapter 12 and verse 31. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. What do we do? We seek first the kingdom of God. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the songs of faith that we've sung. I thank you for what you did in the first service and especially for the prayer time afterwards. And now, Lord, we come again, not just depending upon a word that was spoken, Lord, but depending upon you for fresh life, for a fresh word, for fresh truth and guidance from the scriptures this morning as we each, Lord, seek to find that place where we rejoice and we dance in the circle of your love with room to breathe, for it's in Christ's name I ask. And everybody said, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. You can be seated this morning. You know, as I have just kind of done some searching and surfing on the internet about room to breathe and what people say gives them room to breathe, or where people say, I couldn't find room to breathe, or they felt like they were crushed and they were perplexed by all the things that were coming at them in life that was smothering them, I kept finding that people were actually turning to counterfeit gods. They were turning to idols. And counterfeit gods will never give you freedom. Isaiah talked about these counterfeit gods where people would make idols out of wood. They would paint an idol. They'd put a face on an idol. Then they'd take the wood that was left over and they'd cook their meal or they'd warm themselves by the fire from that wood. And then they would bow down and worship this idol and say this idol was what was giving them life or was their God. And we don't worship idols in America like that. There are places that I've been in the world where they still do worship wooden idols or stone idols or things that they made, but we are more sophisticated with our idols. They can be idols of science. They can be idols of money. They can be idols of success. They can be idols of your looks. And if, you're idol, if, you're, if your looks are your idol, then as you get older, you may find yourself really, really struggling because there's only so many times you can get a facelift and so many times you can get a tummy tuck. You know, and you find yourself fighting and seeing that somehow or another those looks fade and you age or if you find success and you find other people being more successful than you, the, whatever metric you use for success, 
then you find yourself feeling like your idol is not fulfilling you. The Bible tells us that in the last days there will be a man of sin that comes that will even deceive the world with signs and wonders and miracles. And people will go after him and worship him because they're looking for an idol. They're looking for a savior, someone that will save them. But you and I, we don't live in that darkness. And perhaps you don't really realize just how free you are already if you live in a Western society and you're not ruled by idols because prior to the growth of Christianity and prior to the preaching of the gospel, so many people were bound by superstitions, fears of the devil, fears of demons, fear of wicked elves or wicked sprites or wicked fairies, things that would pop up and help them. And it's for all of these superstitions like black cats and ladders and whatever else that you can think of, old wives' tales that came along. You see, Christ has freed us from those things. But there is a freedom that comes only when you are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's why the Bible says that he who knows the Son is free, is free indeed. And I'm so thankful and I'm so grateful for that. I want you to desire God. I want you to want God. I want you to want to know God. I know what desire is. You know what desire is. I remember once in the hospital several years ago when I was struggling with that infection that I picked up in Asia. When I was there in that hospital and I was really sick and I don't remember a whole lot about that first experience. The fevers were so high, but I do remember one man, one man coming to see me from the church, and he pulls something out of his pocket knowing that I love technology. He says, Pastor, I've got something you're going to love to see. And it was an iPhone, the very first iPhone that came along. And as he showed me everything that iPhone could do, I suddenly felt something I hadn't felt in a long time. I felt desire. I wanted an iPhone. And if you know me, I love all things technological. I love gadgets and gizmos, and I love to play with them. And I remember when Becky got to the hospital later that day, I said to her, I said, sweetheart, I know what I want. I've got a, a fresh desire. And she smiled at me, maybe thinking I was wanting to give her a kiss or for her to kiss me. And I said, I want an iPhone. And her face kind of fell, and she says, what is that? And so I began to tell her. We all have desires. I was happy with my car until the first time I rode in a car that had a seat warmer. I got out of the restaurant at Kate's Kitchen with one of the men in our church had taken me to breakfast down to Kate's Kitchen. And, and after breakfast, we got into his car, and all of a sudden, my back and my bottom got so nice and toasty, I had never experienced that before. And I said something about it, and he says, how do you like my bun warmer? And I said, I love this thing. I got home, and I wanted to get rid of that piece of junk that was in the driveway. I needed a bun warmer, too. And if you live in Michigan, you'll really understand that. It's because we are never satisfied with the idols and the things that we think if we get them, we desire them. They never satisfy us because life is always changing. But Jesus never, ever changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did in the days of the New Testament, he's still doing today. Can you say amen? Look at Isaiah 26 and verse 8. Thank you, Dick. I appreciate that big amen right there. Lord, we show our trust in you by obeying your laws, and our heart's desire 
is to glorify your name. Now, notice how Jesus, uh, how the prophet ties this together. How do we show desire for God? By obeying his laws. And you go, oh, that, that's kind of hard. Well, Jesus says it like this. He said, if you want to sum up the law, it's love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, you desire God, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. That means that we love other people, treat other people with respect. It seems to be what the world is saying, you know, that there needs to be this respect, there needs to be love, there needs to be grace and room given to everyone. Well, Jesus says, as we love God, as we love one another, we will fulfill. It's the desire of people who love him. Now, this message is for whatever decade of life you're going through. John Eldridge, in one of his great books, and if you've never read any of John Eldridge's books, I would <clears throat> highly recommend, if you're a man, start with Wild at Heart. What a great book, Wild at Heart. But John, and John says this. He said, 20s are the decades of discovery. You're discovering your gifts. You're discovering your talents. You're learning what you want to do in life. The 30s are decades of sacrifice. You're raising your children. His wife says that your 30s is the time of wiping. You're wiping noses. You're wiping tears. You're wiping counters. And you're wiping babies' bottoms as well. It's that time of sacrifice in our life. The 40s are our times of influence. We've kind of got our children almost raised. We've bought a house. Maybe we have a little extra disposable income. We've earned our stripes. People listen to us because we proved that we're going to stick it out. We're, we've gained some influence in life. In our 50s are the times of maturing. He says we've learned lessons. We've raised our families. He goes on, and if you know John, he's a counselor. John says that this is when most couples find themselves in marriage counseling if their marriages are going to survive because all of a sudden the children are grown, they've, they've been busy accumulating, they've been busy trying to build a life, and they look at each other, and they really don't know each other anymore. And they begin to ask them questions, is this all there is? Is this what life is all about? And so he says, 50s is that time, it's a very important time where you mature because in your 60s, is that decade of when you begin to accept your limitations. Maybe you're not going to achieve all the dreams you thought you were going to achieve. Maybe you're not going to go all the places you thought you were going to go. Maybe you start wrestling with some physical limitations. One of the men in our church told me one time, right after I turned 60, he says, now, Pastor, you need to give some real thought to the next 20 years. And I said, okay. He said, because I'm just telling you, nothing good happens after 60. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not quite true. I've told him that many times, you know. So many good things, like Berechiah coming uh, to be born this week has happened in our lives. But I will tell you, I have had to learn how to accept some limitations. My knees won't let me run the way they used to. My last doctor's visit, my doctor said, I want you to get a foam roller. And I want you to lay your spine on this narrow foam roller. He said, I don't want you to let it roll from side to side. And I want you to stretch your arms out all the way this way. Bring your arms up. And I go, why? He says, because this will help keep your spine flexible. This will help you have good posture. 
it'll help you take care of your core, but it'll also keep your lungs wide open as you get older. He says, if you don't, you're going to find yourself limited in mobility. You're going to find yourself limited in breath. You're going to find yourself, and it's just a simple thing. Do you know how silly it feels to lay on a foam roller, not let it roll side to side, and just act like you're clapping or something like this? I feel silly just doing this for you and telling you that. But it's the 60s. It's letting the limitations. It's trying to hold back those limitations. I told him, I said, well, when I was growing up in the 60s, I felt I was going to be free to do whatever I wanted to do. That was a myth. And then the 70s, and I am barreling towards 70 at 120 miles an hour. I'm barreling there. I'll be there in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. 70s is that decade of investment where all of the life experiences that you've had, what you've learned, you pour back into other people. Friends, those of you that are 60 and 70, get ready. The best is yet to come. Somebody say amen this morning. The best is yet to come, and we need to hang on to that. Well, how do we do that? Number one, knowing God has always been and will always be my highest priority, and I want it to be your highest priority. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. I want every day to know God better than I did yesterday. I want to love him better than I did yesterday. I want to serve him better than I did yesterday. When I was a student at Southeastern University back in the 70s, I kept hearing all these stories about people who could stay up all night and seek the face of the Lord. I read about Jesus staying up all night. And so I took a quilt into the old gymnasium at Southeastern that doesn't exist anymore. And I spread that quilt out upon the gym floor. And I said, Lord, I'm going to spend all night seeking you. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to serve you. Somewhere during the night, somebody come and woke me up because I had fallen fast asleep on that old carpet, on that old quilt there in the gymnasium. And I learned that getting to know God wasn't a matter of how hard I prayed. It wasn't a matter of how, how hard I worked. Getting to know God was just simply learning to trust God wants to know me as well. Now, I know he knows everything about me. I know he knows everything about my desire. But what is it about God? And I can't answer this question. I'm going to pose a question I can't answer. But what is it about God in all of his perfection that he created Adam and Eve and that he would come walking in the garden in the cool of the evening to have fellowship with him? What is it about God that would say, Adam, Adam, where are you? What is it about God that if one sheep leaves the 99, he will leave the 99 sheep to go find that one sheep that is lost? He knows everything about us, but something about God is not satisfied unless he has fellowship with you and with me. And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel so loved, and that makes me feel so secure. Can you say amen to that? To know that God wants to know me more than I want to know God. You see, I would as a pastor, I really would, I would as a pastor that everyone in our church loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I know that's not true. I know that's a journey. I know that's where people are wanting to get to. Maybe some of you, you're just satisfied with a Sunday morning only experience. And maybe some of you, you've not just really put loving God with your whole heart and maybe loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And I know that's a process. It's why Christ calls me as a pastor to feed the lambs. It's why Christ calls me as a pastor to lift up hands that are hanging down. It's why Christ calls me as a pastor to strengthen 
those feeble knees. And as I study the word of the Lord each week, I hear the word of the Lord in my spirit saying, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Not condemn my people, not damn my people, but comfort, comfort ye, my people. You see, Jesus may speak words of conviction to you and me in the sermon, but he will never speak words of condemnation to us. Jesus may speak words of direction to you from his word or from the sermon, but he will never speak words of damnation to you. When you hear the word of the Lord, you will hear the word of the Lord that not only comforts you, but strengthens your knees. It lifts up your hands and it gives you the strength to go on and to pursue his kingdom and to say, as I always encourage you to say, come on victory. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? But as a pastor, I'm not going to pamper weakness. As a pastor, I'm not going to come along and somehow or another try to reward people for their spiritual sickness or weakness. You see, those three years that I spent in the hospital, and I'm looking at some of you who loved me and encouraged me, and you prayed with me as I would come back to preach only to be struck down by those infections again. I'm looking at some of you this morning that I have still just tons of cards that you sent and kind notes that you sent and that Becky would keep posted in the hospital room. My being in the hospital was not so that I could be rewarded for being sick. My being in the hospital was not so that I could get cards and encouragement. My being in the hospital was so that I could get well and I could get out of that bed with vigor and I could get out of that bed with strength and I could rise from that bed and the strength and the power of the Lord to continue to fight the good fight of faith and to serve the Lord with everything I've got and to serve this congregation and love my family. As a pastor, we never just try to reward people. We want to see people become strong in the Lord. Somebody say amen this morning. I want you strong and vigorous in the Lord. So number one, know the heart of God. And the way you know the heart of God is by reading his word, waiting in his presence, gathering with the church to worship and with your small group. And let me give you a good way to start that. Every day this week, I want you to read through John chapter 17. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus as he prays for you. I want you to get the heart of God as you read John 17 every day. Read it in a different translation every day. You can go to Bible.com. That's Bible.com. And if that's not in the resource list, we'll put that in for you. And you'll just find a multitude of translations that you can, you can read from. It won't cost you anything. But read every day the book of John. Read it with your spouse. Read it with your family. Read it with a friend. Read it in your small group. And then discuss what is God saying to you? Just simply ask him to speak to you as you're reading it. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 if you would. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Everything else is worthless. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. As you seek to make God known your highest priority... Ask yourself, as you read John 17, is there something in my life, some relationship, some habit, is there something in my life that's holding me back from being a passionate follower of Christ? And if it is, hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you this morning. You don't need chill bumps. You don't need a mystical experience. But God has sent me here through his word to say to you, Cast it aside as garbage so that you might know the Lord 
and love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Number two, unplug daily and listen to God. Unplug daily and listen to God. When you unplug daily and you listen to the Lord, it gives you room to breathe. Gives you that place in life where you can go and kneel down. You can pray. You can worship. You can lift your hands and sing to the Lord. You can stop and ask yourself the question, am I really loving God more today than I did yesterday? Am I serving God better than I did yesterday? Do I know him a little bit better? You can ask yourself, and if you're like me, you can spend some time writing because it helps you think. And then in the presence of the Lord, say, Father, I desire you more than anything else. I miss singing that song we used to sing, it's my desire to live for Jesus. It's my desire to live for him because more than anything else, I want to know him. And so let me just tell you, you can hear his voice. You can hear his voice. I've never heard the audible voice of the Lord. This week, I woke up from a dream that I spent quite a bit of time journaling about. I talked to you about the dream. It refocused how I was preaching this message because the more I journaled about it and thought about it, I realized that was the Lord speaking to me because I never dreamed anything about it. And maybe later when we have more time, I'll be able to tell you that dream. But it was so profound. But it went right to the core of shame and fear that I wrestled with growing up disabled all my life. And there is a freedom that I feel this morning that I don't know that I've ever quite felt before. You say, Pastor, are you sure that was from the Lord? Yes, because every scripture that came to mind as I journaled and as I prayed just seemed to line right up with it. But you won't know the voice of the Lord if you're constantly plugged into everything else. If you're constantly plugged into Facebook, into Twitter, and to Fox News or CNN News, if you're constantly plugged in to the television or listening to the latest hits on the radio or whatever you're doing, you have to unplug. You have to get quiet in His presence. Matthew 6 and verse 5, when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production. In other words, don't try to pray Shakespearean prayers. Just find a quiet secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God just be there as simply and as honestly as you can manage the focus look the focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace because as long as you're focused upon yourself you're never going to be able to sense the presence of God just cast your care and remember, God wants to know you. I love it when people ask me out for lunch. I got an email this week. Man said, I know you're not going to restaurants yet, but I want to be the first on your list. I want to take you to lunch. He doesn't go to our church. He said, I've made some inquiries, and I know your favorite restaurant is Big Bear Lodge. This guy knows me. And he says, I want to have lunch with you. He's been listening and following. 
I want to have love. I feel loved by that. I feel honored by that. But that is nothing compared that God wants to spend time with you. Look how Augustine prayed. And my mind is not this wise to pray like this, but it expresses my heart. Eternal God, the light of minds that know you, the joy of hearts that love you, the strength of the wills that serve you, grant us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom. Would you say that last line with me? Whom to serve is perfect freedom. One more time. Whom to serve is perfect freedom. He who knows the Son will be free indeed. And perfect freedom is in serving Christ. So I'd like you to take these words from Proverbs 18 and verse 21. The tongue can speak words that will bring life or death. I want you to put it on a sticky note, and I want you to put it up on your bathroom window or your bathroom mirror. Put it on your dash of your car. Put it on your computer screen, somewhere where you'll see it all week. The tongue can speak words that bring life or death. And remember, God can give us conviction, but he doesn't bring condemnation. God can bring us direction, but he doesn't bring damnation. Jesus took care of all of that at the cross. He's paid the price so that you and I can be close to him. And then finally this morning, and Pastor Rick is going to come and lead us in communion, trust God always. Three quick quotes. Trust God always. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Pastor A.W. Tozier in the knowledge of the holy. Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God, how I live my life is a testimony of what I believe about God. And then Beth Moore that we got to hear at General Council a couple of years ago. Beth Moore says these words, who we believe God is greatly affects our eternal desires. But I'd like to suggest that nothing has a greater effect on the quality of our lives and the fulfillment of our desires we are wise to ask ourselves the question, who do I say that God is? Who do you say the Lord is? Who is God to you this morning? Is he the God of all strength and hope? Is he the God of all comfort? Is he your savior? I know you know about Jesus. I know you've heard about Jesus. You can't live in America without knowing about Jesus. But did you know that he came to save you from your sins. If you watched last week, I talked about how Pizarro's men had to cross the line to either stay in the comforts of Costa Rica or else to follow him to Peru. Jesus crossed a line from heaven to earth. Jesus crossed the line, he who knew no sin, to take your sins, my sins upon himself and to take it to a tree called Calvary. The Bible says, cursed is the one who dies upon a tree. Jesus took the curse of sin. He took the condemnation. He took the damnation. 
so that you and I could be free, so we could find room to breathe. And I'm asking you this morning, before we take communion together, that you would commit your life to him. You don't have to understand it all, but you do need to understand this. You and I were born sinners. That means we've made moral mistakes. You've made them, I've made them. And only Christ can forgive us and release us from that. And that's what I'm asking you to do. If you get started with that, you'll learn so much more and you'll find perfect freedom. And I'm asking those of you who love the Lord and serve the Lord that, number one, you'll learn to trust God in community. You'll learn you not only need the church, but you need a small group to do life with. There are times when I come to this pulpit carrying burdens that nobody else knows about but my small group. There are times when I come to preach that it's not going to be of any benefit. It will not strengthen feeble knees. It will not lift up weary hands. But there is a small group behind the scenes that is praying for me. Because when I'm in pain, whether it's spiritually, emotionally, or physically, I pray, I talk to Jesus, but I also talk to my small group, and I feel the power and the energy of their prayers as they pray with me. Because Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So find breathing room this week by learning to trust God with others in a small group. And then I'm going to close, and Rick, if you'll come on up, my dear brother. As I was processing this dream and praying and looking in the Bible, this has been an incredible week. In my devotions, this verse stood out to me, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and it's not on the screen, it's not in the outline. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. Listen, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. This has been a hard year with COVID. We're pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. Just before COVID started, Chris and Rachel lost a baby. We grieve deeply. We mourn deeply. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. My oldest son and his wife raised three healthy, three, two very healthy children and one disabled child that requires round-the-clock care. We are pressed on every side, but we are not troubled. As I begin to read this verse and all the translations of the Bible I have, I came across that great reformer's translation, John Knox, the Scottish reformer. I've been to his house in Edinburgh. As the docent led us through, I said, I want to go to the room where Knox would lean out the window and he would preach the gospel under house imprisonment. He would preach the gospel and crowds would gather. I'd say, may I hold my head out the window and may I say a word? Tourists were passing below and she gave me permission. We opened the window and I said these words, out loud, Jesus loves Edinburgh. 
Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Jesus loves you and he's coming again. And she said, that's enough now. You need to come back in. Oh, it burned in my soul. I preached on the Acropolis. I preached on Mars Hill. I'll preach wherever they give me the chance to feed those who want to hear the word of the Lord. And now you'll understand why I told you that story, because pressed on every side by troubles, but not crushed. Knox translated this, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we still have room to breathe. God will give you a window somewhere to proclaim the good news that Jesus saves. Can you say amen this morning? Hallelujah.